0: Okay, salaamu alaikum everyone, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to another amazing Saturday session. We're going to continue with day four of Surah al-Tawbah. Um, I wanted to, as usual, call attention to yesterday's amazing khutbah, in which it's it's called the U.S. government is the most influential imam in the world today. And it starts where Sheikh brings us to remember this image. Um, it is a picture of Donald Trump and CC and the king of Saudi Arabia, with his their hands on this globe. It looks a little bit scary and ominous. Um, and it's really the starting point of this center in Riyadh um, that is focused on fighting global extremism. And Sheikh um, points out that it is also, it's an incredibly important starting point of a lot of the Islamophobia that has really ravaged our world. Um, you know, a lot of key, um, figures, scholars um, like uh, Farhan uh, Maliki um, and uh, Saman al Oda and um, Awad al-Karni, I believe, if i got the names right, a lot of these really key scholars were arrested. Um, this was an idea that was, um, you know, started by the United States It came out in testimony in Congress. Um, and it really um, is sort of where Islam became engineered um, with the help of Islamophobes. Um, so that we have to understand that when terms like political Islam are kicked around, um, this is where it sort of began that political Islam became, um, you know, equated with things like standing up for rights, standing up for um, human rights and, um, you know, anything that is justice-oriented when it comes to Muslims. Um, It's not obviously the same thing for Jews and Christians to stand up for their rights. Um, but it, you know, became it fed into this whole idea of just, you know, hey brother, don't say anything political when it comes to Islam, um, and it ties back to, you know, a lot of power, a lot of money, a lot of influence, and so Sheikh walks us through that, and you know makes it very clear to us that this you know islam that is actually getting fed to us on social media and you know in the world that has largely been adopted is engineered by this center and you know supported by um, the big players big money big power so we as consumers of social media or as muslims need to actively fight and resist and you know really um, stand up for Justice, you know, resisted these calls to just be quiet and, and not stand up for our rights. There's so much um, that's really important for us to know educationally. Um, so I really encourage people to watch this. But you know, this is what's happening in our world. Um, this is the Islam that, you know, people in power want us to buy into, and it's, it's exactly the Islam that has led to, um, you know, all of the destruction around the world, all of the oppression. You know, the concentration camp in um, in China. Um, the, you know, genocides across, you know, uh, Myanmar and um, Yemen. Yeah, I, I mean, everywhere. So, it's um, something that we have to resist. And this education here is really part and parcel of what we have to internalize and find our strength in to really fight against all of that. Um, so, definitely encourage you, to do that um, to watch it. Um, so, I wanted to just take a moment. Um, you know, I've talked a lot about this issue before hijab um, and I really was not planning on kind of em- embracing it or talking about it again but certainly you know in light of what's happening in the world with you know women's struggles but more importantly um, I think there is some communication on YouTube which I tend not to really like to respond to but so you know people are or there, there is a, a sense out there that people think that I am speaking out not wearing you know a scarf knowing full well that I am committing a sin by not wearing a scarf, but yet still choosing to do that. And so that becomes problematic for people to listen to anything that either I have to say or, you know, maybe this channel has to say. So I want to go very, very clearly on the record. And this is something I spoke with Sheikh about, you know, and I want to double down and say, I do not believe that I am committing a sin by not wearing the scarf this is definitely not a situation where i recognize that there is you know near universal consensus across scholarship that hijab is absolutely mandatory for women and yet because i don't feel comfortable or i'm not ready or i'm a convert or you know i haven't made it that far in my journey that somehow i've chosen to sin and not wear the scarf no i think that it is very clear from the work that we have done here, from my own due diligence, from my own prayer, from my own reasoning, from, you know, a lot of the evidence that we've presented here in multiple videos, in work that Sheikh has done, um, in extensive, um, you know, halakhas on the evidence and issues uh, around hijab. There's plenty of evidence, in my view, to support the case that God does not require every single woman to wear A scarf if they do not believe that that is what god calls them to do so in my view i do not believe that that is something that god is calling all women to do now we've often said this is an interpretive issue this is between a woman and her god that a woman has a right to her own due diligence to her own research to her own prayer Um, and so i really would never get in the way of a woman's right to want to wear a scarf if she really felt that that was something that was incumbent upon her that God demanded of her then absolutely that is her right to arrive at that conclusion. For me as a convert I approached this issue from an issue of evidence and a lot of times what people like throw at me or throw on social media is you know comments like this and actually let me just share a couple so With all due respect to Grace and all the Muslim women out there who choose not to wear hijab, we need to be very careful about saying hijab is not important. Yes, it is not a pillar and not wearing it does not take you out of the religion. However, I believe that minimizing it is a big sin as it undermines a basic tradition that has been transmitted to us over hundreds of years and it is what makes Muslim women unique. I actually found much deeper meaning to the hijab um, order after I moved to live in the West. I came to understand what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means by, quote, so that they will be known, in verse 3359. I find it really empowering that I am able to show my identity and to easily spot other Muslim women. It gives me a sense of pride and responsibility for displaying the best of manners. Moreover, it provides me with an unseen boundary that no man can cross. So, you know, I would say wonderful. You know, more power to you. These are good personal reasons for why you should wear the hijab, but this has actually nothing to do with the evidence, the legal evidence that we talk about because we approach this from a more systematic perspective. You absolutely 100% have a right to believe that, um, and you know, you absolutely should. Um, And so, but you know, this is also very interesting for me because I was a convert. When people really just came out of the woodwork af- you know, after hearing that I was a convert and telling me, you have to wear hijab because if you don't wear hijab, you're not as you know, good of a Muslim, one of the reasons that, these are, this, these are sort of classic reasons that were given to me, and also people were told, well, you know, we want to be judged as women on substance and not appearance. And so I find it really interesting that, you know, yeah. that doesn't really apply when you're not wearing a scarf. So if I'm not wearing a scarf, I'm still not judged on um, substance. I'm judged on appearance. So isn't that a little bit hypocritical? Um, but anyway, just to, to and, and actually, you know, what's um, the one most compelling reason that I have heard that made me think, well, maybe I should wear a scarf, is that um, someone, uh, a friend of mine, um, one of the main reasons why she likes to wear it is for solidarity and unity and to communicate to people in the room that she's a Muslim and that she's there with them. So it's really a lot, It's a, you know, it's a beautiful um, sign of solidarity. And I thought, well, that is a really powerful reason, especially in this day and age, to actually wear a scarf. Because I actually really love seeing women um, wearing hijab and I, you know, then I know I can say salam alaikum and it actually does give me a lot of comfort to see that there, visually, are other Muslim women. But that is a very different reason, again, than, you know, the evidence. And it's a very different thing to come forward and say this is what God explicitly wants from you, and you know we often—I mean—we know it's a huge sin to say something is you know halal when it's haram or say that it's haram when it's actually halal, and the way that people so readily come forward and say you know it's absolutely haram that you don't wear the scarf as, you know, a Muslim woman. So here's another example of another quote um, from from YouTube: um, Hijab is not a condition to become a Muslim. The testimony of faith or belief is the only condition required to become a Muslim. With that being said, it is a matter of consensus between Muslim scholars that hijab is mandatory for women. A woman who doesn't wear it remains a Muslim, of course. She's just a Muslim who is committing a sin. We are all sinners, but not wearing hijab is an outwardly visible sin. Also, by not wearing hijab, a Muslim woman who has any claim to Islamic scholarship contradicts the existing agreed-upon opinions of Muslim scholars. So it is not hard to understand Muslims' reluctance to receive Islamic knowledge from someone who is outwardly sinning and blatantly refusing and refuting unanimous Islamic scholarship. Don't wear the hijab if you don't believe it's mandatory or whatever your reasoning is, but then don't expect people to trust your Islamic scholarship. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Why is it so hard to understand the nuances? Um, So you know, I mean, typical. You know, not a very nice message, but the point is, um, again, I am not not wearing a scarf because I think I'm just committing a sin, and that you know, I would rather give into what's more comfortable for me. I genuinely believe that, um, you know, what God calls for is modesty. We've talked about this many times before. Modesty is contextual, um, and you know it's actually um, really important, especially in this day and age, to be an ambassador of the faith. And you know we could have very, you know, rich and nuanced conversations and debates about, you know, does it make sense for people to, you know, not wear something that can immediately be off-putting. Um, you could make an argument to say, okay, you know, a lot of times when, you know, women who are struggling with wearing the hijab, you know, have crises of faith, they feel like they are judged, they feel like they are excluded, you know, they can't get jobs, they're not treated well, you know, it's, it's there's a reason that women, you know, feel harm. On the flip side, you could say, this is a point of solidarity, it's a point of standing up for identity, um, you know, we can make an argument that, well, yes, but Muslim women don't have a uniform. Um, we can also make a point that you know God as you know this I believe Islam is a religion that is universal it's for humanity it's not just for Muslims so when I think about what is it that God calls for for modesty you know if if I were to believe that what Islam calls for you know if hijab was something that God really wanted then what that would mean is that God would literally want 50% of the world population to wear a scarf and I actually really don't believe that Um, and I think that that would be irrational um, but there's so many different ways that we could have a conversation about this. But what this comes down to, bottom line for me, is if you believe yourself, obviously, you know, between you and your God, that this is something that's important for you, then absolutely, by all means, you know, no one should get in the way of that decision for you. Unfortunately, so many men are the ones that I actually, you know, get a lot of messages from about this issue of hijab, which is in itself, you know, Sheikh is like, well. I think a, a reasonable response is to say, Well, are you a woman? No, you're not a woman. Okay, so why do you care? This is not, you know, this has nothing to do with you. This is between, you know, a woman and her God. Um, and, you know, um, sorry to just belabor this point, but, you know, there are just so many more important things in the world today. God has told us that God will sell the differences between us. I think, you know, the fact that. Muslims are getting decimated everywhere um, and we're still like busy with debates about hijab and you know we know that that women covering of women hijab has become the battleground for identity politics for you know Islamophobes Um, look at what's happening in Iran versus what's happening in India you know there's just so much more to be said and I think bottom line what we learn here is that Islam is about justice, it's about ethics, it's about beauty, it's about humanism, it's about being a wonderful person. And if I believed that my God would deny me anything because I didn't wear a scarf, but I was able to, you know, be a just and beautiful and ethical person, if I believed that that piece of cloth was that much more important, then that would be a very petty God. And I don't believe in a petty God. I believe in a grand, beautiful, fair, you know, justice-oriented God that will judge each and every one of us on our own merits and what goodness we bring to the world. If that makes it difficult for you to listen to me, that I don't wear a scarf, then I would invite you to go watch another channel um, or just skip past my portion, whatever you want. I mean, honestly, um, I also believe that I speak for the many women who have written to me and said thank you for being a role model for a woman who can speak without a scarf because there are women out there who feel silenced because they, they feel they have no role to play because they don't wear a scarf. They're Muslim women. And so I have to then ask the question, what have we really accomplished when we're silencing women now who don't wear scarves? Isn't that exactly counter to the point also, whether you wear a scarf or not? The point is we need to empower our women, we need to encourage them, we need to let them care and speak out and be the best that they can be. And that's what the Quran calls for. So um, again, sorry to take so much more time with this, but I just wanted to make it very clear on the record that this is what I believe and that I believe there's plenty of evidence to support other women who would also agree that the scarf is not something that you know, if, if a woman believes it, not incumbent upon them, then they have every right to believe that. So thank you for uh, letting me get that out. <laughs> and with that, um, thank you for joining us for another amazing um, continuation of Surah Al-Tawbah Day 4.
1: In the name of Allah, <laughs> the Most Merciful, the Most Merciful, and the Most Muhammad الحبيب المصطفى المرسل رحمة للعالمين خاتم الرسل والأنبياء أجمعين وعلى آله الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري واسر لي أمري وحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين Okay, so we are, I'm told we stopped at 37. Uh, you know, I'm, I reserve what I most of what I want to say about our state of affairs in my khutbahs so that we can keep the halakhas. But, um, SubhanAllah, I mean, Allah doesn't say so that they will be known. Actually, Allah says exactly the opposite, so that they will not be known. The comment to uh, one of the messages received. You know, uh, Where, where do you start or end with something like the claim of Ijma'a when 99% of what you hear about Ijma'a is uh, ideological and woefully ill informed about the actual legal discourses on Ijma'a and what type of Ijma'a and who counts and whose Ijma'a counts? And, uh, and the the what issues can be mujmaale and what issues cannot be mujmaali and it, it just it's it's a it's a non starter and it's a, the again the, we you know the um, um and even the nuance like how many times in my career have i said that what I would believe about something like the hijab in a country like Egypt would be different than what I would believe about the hijab in a country like the United States. All that nuance is lost, and it is because we are not a nuanced people. and. Um, uh, and, and we we suffer from a, an educational deficit in an age in which the only remaining venue for power that we have at our disposal is education. Um, we have nothing else. As a people, we really have nothing else. <sighs> and even the the you know if if you do not want to learn about the Quran because i allow my wife the autonomy of mind and self determination to make up her own mind about what god requires of her then you have far more serious Moral problems in your character, uh, then I doubt you are have even the basic qualifications to comprehend anything that the Quran says. Um, anyway, Subhanallah. So we stopped at thirty-seven, and to just remind us. That Allah Subhanahu wa Taala specifically calls out the practice of manipulating sacred time in order to achieve human objectives, and this is not a minor point because what the Meccans Did in part the livelihood of so many Arab tribes? um, So many Arab tribes relied on raiding other tribes as a means of livelihood, and that is part of the reason that they would alter the nasi. Um, or alter or or adopt that practice of nasi, transposing or, you know, uh, saying, well, this year Muharram is not going to be a a sanctuary month. Um, We will make, we will replace, instead of Muharram, another month. And the logic of that was very pragmatic. And very opportunistic. It is because we need the functional necessity of being able to raid another times, in other words, resort to violence. Um, And the implications, I mean, the ethical implications of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala coming and saying, The fact that it serves your opportunistic causes, the fact that citing your practical needs is not sufficient justification for this practice of a nasi of you know switching and replacing one sacred month for another, the implications of this in our attitude towards sacred space and sacred time is profound. I mean, the the simple fact that the way Muslims have evolved is to completely, completely erase the idea of sacred month. You rarely hear even anyone seriously taking this issue uh, in consideration. Or even the idea that there are months where you go, you under, are under an extra obligation to avoid everything that could lead to, to violence. Morality is like a seed. If it's planted in fertile grounds, it sprouts into an entire vegetation. If the seed remains a seed and nothing but a seed, then you failed in the moral project. The whole idea of a moral project, it, 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 morality cannot be engineered God cannot come and say, here is the tree of morality, and the tree of morality is good for every time and every place. Because that type of statism, that type of being, st- when, you, when you present a static picture to humanity, itself is contrary to the conditions of khalq, to the conditions of creation. Because conditions of creation are, are based on movement. Movement is life. When movement ceases, that's death. Everything in creation in order to honor and preserve and promote life is constantly in movement. And that is precisely why morality works as a seed, because the growth of morality is the dynamics of movement. Now, so... If Allah says there are these four months, if you understand the seeds of morality, you then deduct from that basic principle of four months in a year in which you are under an added obligation to avoid not just violence, but all infractions against the divine, you work out all the profound moral obligations of relating to time as not as we do in the modern age where space and time and creation is all under the supremacy of human beings, where human beings are considered the sovereign over everything in existence, but you recognize God's sovereignty when it comes to space and time, and you recognize that God sets the moral momentums, the ethical momentums in our existence by saying, here's the seed that I want you to grow. But we've completely killed the seed of sacred time, except for Dhul-Hujjah, and even Dhul-Hujjah, which, you know, the months of of pilgrimage. um, Other than the rituals of pilgrimage, and and even if if you look at the progression of, of Muslim history, even something like Hajj became from a collective enterprise for the Ummah where, you know, various parts and pieces of the Ummah contributes in a cumulative way to make the Hajj take place. We've even shrunk that into the nation state. We've taken the whole enterprise of Hajj and said, we leave it up to the nation-state. And and with the nation-state, with the nation-state, it is no surprise that the very idea of sacred space and sacred time became meaningless. Because the nation-state sees itself as the sovereign. The very idea of the, the the way the modern world is organized where the nation state is the sovereign and the nation state can invoke the principle of non-intervention and the nation state is the one that decides on what are what holiday holidays you observe the nation state decides on what days are off you know the day of independence, national, you know, the day of liberation, whatever the, the, that completely altered the reality and the way that Muslims relate to time and space. To even go a bit further, the reason that Muslims would... One of the... Part of the sociology of modern Muslim reality is that a sense of... Um, how do I put it? You see this in, 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 in a lot of uh, uh, Muslim activism. When you work with Muslim... Uh, um uh, you know Muslim movements or Islamic you you always encounter the sense of angst that comes from an anxiety about your present moment in time. and time you, you want to be a Muslim but you don't know how to be a Muslim and even like something like this hijab that Grace was talking about, it, it is actually the, the the people who are, you know, pronouncing this so much angst. It's it's it it's because fundamentally they want to Islamize their space, but they don't know how to Islamize their space. And so much of it, so much of it is because our tradition and our entire intellectual and moral and ethical legacy is not consistent with the idea of the sovereign nation state that ultimately controls which space or what time can be sacralized, rendered in a somewhat or pseudo-sacred space, and which doesn't. But going back to the idea of moral trajectories, imagine if you raise your children with the notion that you have four months in the year where you are under an added obligation to be particularly observant, not to surrender to anger, aggression, so that imagine if the trajectory of that seed would have sprouted for instance where someone is contemplating divorce and you'd say well you know what not in the sacred months take time to take time to think about it let the sacred months pass don't break the bond of marriage in the sacred months it is a a trajectory consistent with the seed but is a trajectory that never developed and it never developed because the 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 progression of islamic history was one in which nothing even approximating what allah says about in Surah Taubah, about sacred space or space, sacred time, even came close to being understood, at least in the modern age, because you find do find some fascinating explorations and expositions and discussions about. So, for instance, in a lot of the Sufi tradition, it is believed that. Enteka happens in the sacred month. That there is the most likely time for enteka. The the uh, uh, vows of silence the, and this is like a whole a whole set vows of silence in the process of enteka would often be taken in the in the sacred month. Um, sacred months would would in until the dawn of colonialism the the sacred months were the months where most of the awqaf created to take care of in in everything from indigents to orphans to public works there would good deeds would would, would spiral upwards during the sacred months so people would we're conscious that during the sacred months, we are under the added obligation to go the extra step to do what is good. And you find anecdotal statements in the Islamic tradition that wayfarers or travelers or students would often organize and schedule their lives. So, so always, if you are going to travel, let's say for to Cairo for study, so you want to land in Egypt uh, it, it, during the sacred months because the chances of securing a scholarship that will fund your studies at this that this school or that school is the highest during the sacred month. So the rhythm of life itself, and this is something again, because Muslims didn't write their history, and Muslims have no clue about their own history. But if you books, if if we were Europeans, if this was European history, not Muslim history, you would have found books and books and books written by professors about the sacred month the impact of the sacred months upon European history. But again, because our research agendas are defined for us by, in the same way that I said that the greatest imam is, is the, in the US, well, it has been like that since the dawn of colonialism, that you know, our research agendas are actually defined for us by orientalists. Whether we want to support what they say or we want to refute what they say, it is defined by Orientalists. So the impact of the sacred months on the rhythm of life, educational rhythm of life, even the rhythm of life on the development of Islamic music, for instance, where you know you find, again, tantalizing pieces of evidence when you read broadly enough where someone will say yeah i composed this poem or i composed this during the sacred month, and you know may may allah bless it and accept it a statement like this is like the 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 fingerprint or the footprint for a world it's like when you know trackers they want to know the universe of animals they from the evidence of their, their, um, uh, their tracks that they leave on the... You know, they can tell you their, their, their mating habits, their feeding habits, their, you know, their travel habits, their migration patterns, and so on. Same thing. It, in text, you find these little statements from which you can discover a great deal about the cultural history of a people but it's a type of work again that was never done because western scholars were never interested in the sacred months because in western history there's nothing such nothing like the sacred months so it was completely ignored and ignored by of course western scholars which meant that it's then simply ignored by muslim scholars okay So, but I mean, if, uh, if the Quran is just endlessly I amazing. Mean, look, look at 36. This is right after Allah says that that there are four months out of, of the year, right? ذلك الدين فلا فيهن أنفسكم. So that literal expression can be understood that don't don't commit don't be unjust to you to yourself during the sacred month. But can also be understood as Allah is alerting you to the importance of Allah defining sacred time and telling you this is something of great value to your religiosity. And failing to comprehend that is a great injustice that you commit against yourself. Okay. 37 is the condemnation of a nasi, and we've talked about that. Um, Yeah. Okay, so now after 37, starting with 38, and this will take us to... It's not an exaggeration to say that the balance of Surah Tawbah beginning with this paragraph shift, this new movement, at 38. Tzorat tawbah starts out sounding like it is about fighting the other, fighting the enemy. But once you hit that turning point on verse 38, you discover that what Surat at the balance of Surat At-Tawbah, is about fighting the internal enemy, the inside enemy, the enemy that induces you to fail, in your obligations towards Allah. the Subhanallah. even look at the, 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 the let's just the, okay. Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu ma lakum idha qila lakum anfiru fi sabilillahi tasaltum ila al-ard. araditum bilhayati dunya minal akhirah? فَمَا مَتَاعُ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا فِي الْآخِرَةِ إِلَّا قَلِيلٌ إِلَّا تَنْفِرُوا يُعَذِّبْكُمْ عَذَابًا أَلِيمًا ويستبدل قَوْمًا خَيْرَكُمْ وَلَا تضره شَيْئًا وَاللَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٌ These two ayats, which are like the preamble to the balance of Surah al-Tawbah are extremely alarming. And the words here matter a great deal. The, the matter is posed as a rhetorical question. So, why is it that when you are called upon to do nufur, if it is said to here most translations will say if you if you are told to go to war or to go to fight but the expression iza qila lakum anfiru is more precise than that if you are told it's like saying if you are told to it could include fighting but an nufur fi is everything that requires dynamism and activism everything that requires that you go against your comfort that you go against your apathy. This is what is so remarkable about that expression, nafara. What is the opposite of nufur? The opposite of nufur is to remain static. Nufur, by definition, means movement. So if, if I sit where I am and you bring me my food, that's not nufur. But if I go to get my food, that's nufur. Nufur means you move, you act. Now, so why Allah poses this question? Why is it, and why is it that it, 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 why, when when you are called upon to activate? To become dynamic, to get moving, to get sacrificing, to actually do rather than not do, to overcome your apathy, to overcome your comfort, to overcome your laziness. Why is it that when Allah calls upon you to do that, the ila al-ard? The expression is unbelievable that when you are called upon to do this, it's like your reaction, it, Nufur means you move, and as you move, you are defying gravity. Because you're defying gravity, your attachment to the ground, to the earth, is less, not more. Istaqaltumur art you actually retreat and become way down to the earth. So a more profound picture of apathy is not possible. Like you are called upon to overcome your apathy, to overcome your inclinations to be inactive, to be a, instead of Nufur is doing, the opposite of Nufur is not doing. A Tathakul Al is where you rely on either claims of belief or pontifications of truth or live in a world of he said, she said, I said, but you ultimately don't do. And Allah cuts to the to the heart of the matter by telling you in a Tathaqur il al Ard, weighing down yourself to to this life, is premised on safety on t- saying i have what i have in this life i don't want to risk it. did you have you have you become content with life on this earth because unless you are not content with life on this earth. Unless in your mind, you you completely believe that there's another life and that this other life cannot be one without sacrifices in this life. Inevitably, you will not sacrifice. Inevitably, you will philosophize your apathy. You will philosophize your statism. You will say, I have what I know. And what I know is better than what I don't know. And what I know is comfortable. And so, I will philosophize what I whatever I need to tell myself in order to weigh myself down, anchor myself, in what is familiar to me, what is comfortable to me, so that I will not need to take risks, I will not need to make sacrifices. Again, when we talk about the seeds of morality and moral trajectories, just this ayah, Wallahi l'azim, aqsim billah, just this area is enough. Is enough to refute all the apathetic, lazy, dull, backwards Islam that is being being spewed at you from Azhar to the Emirates to Saudiya to. Merkez Atadal, that center, global center to combat extremism. Just this ayah is enough. Because this ayah is telling you, whoever is telling you, just, you know, live, live a comfortable life. And stay with what is familiar to you. Don't take risks for the sake of Allah. Islam is about move, not, not Islam is not about movement. Islam is not about dynamism. Islam is not about activism. Islam is not about action. Is refuted by just this one ayah. If we had that mentality of understanding that Allah lays seeds, and then Allah see looks to see what we've done. What we've done with the seeds that Allah have given us. If if. 1400 years later, all you've done is the seed. And all you have is the seed as it is. Or maybe even just a little plant. But n- nothing more than that. You've done nothing. The seed needs to grow into an entire forest. That's why Allah irhamu you know, this day and age, even Sheikh Muhammad Al Ghazali now is being attacked as a Muslim extremist. Even someone like Sheikh Muhammad Al Ghazali, not just Karahdawi, but Allah wa Sheikh Ghazali. You see, in in our book is the formula, is is Allah telling us the very idea of Muslims being at the rear end of humanity, being the most backwards people, is, is inherently inconsistent with the idea of nufur. How do people become backwards? How do civilizations thrive? Civilizations thrive by nufur. Look, look, the reason Europe ascended is because they went on the age of discovery. Forget, I mean, yeah, they, they had oppressive ideologies, they, they abused people, but the key thing is they, they, they adopted the attitude that if we stay safely at home, we gain nothing. We've got to master the oceans. We've got to travel to lands. As they traveled and as they explored and as they investigated, practical needs for practical inventions arose. Because they were confronting challenges, things that were unfamiliar to them. And so, the institutional infrastructure was created to invent solutions, scientific solutions, to the challenges they confronted in the age of discovery. The age of discovery required a great deal of adventurism, a great deal of dynamism, and a great deal of sacrifice without numerous people, people that only historians would know about, who have sacrificed. I mean, I've read books on how many, not books about those who safely landed on the shores somewhere and oppressed the natives. I've read books about captains on ships that got lost and never made it back home and either their ship drowned somewhere or were attacked by pirates or landed in a very destitute land where everyone was starved to death or no one knows what even happened to them, some of the ships that landed in, in, in frozen area. And the thing that, I, that I've always just fascinated me, what I am seeing is that these people are doing four. At that age, they all believed. One all ships of of exploration and discovery always had clergy on board, and with the, with the, uh, um, people that would perish the ship with the ship. Of course, the clergy would perish as well, because the idea that what they were doing was crusading on behalf of Christ was part of their ideological makeup. And I would constantly, as I'm reading these stories, of t- t- tons of you know, individuals just, just perished in these explorations. And I say, how did they get infected with the ethic of Nufur while we lost the ethic of Nufur? What, what becomes of a people? When you read that an non-Muslim has cr- ru- have climbed to the top of mountain this and the top of mountain that that's no four. You're driven by a passion to know to conquer. when you are driven by nothing but you want the familiar and the static. And your biggest issue is, you know, I want to see what is familiar to me, a woman with her hair covered. You're dead. There's no before in you. There's nothing in there. There's no movement. There's no passion. You don't, when you want to learn, and so what you want to learn is teach me all the hadith that I already know. Nothing new. You're not driven by a passion to learn anything new. You just want to learn what is already familiar to you. You want everything that you think you know to be affirmed and confirmed and reaffirmed and reconfirmed. That's not Nufur. That's Tathakul ila al Ard. You are setting your priority, not new lands to bring the word of God, to bring the light of God, to bring the justice of God, to commit yourself to the sovereignty of God. What the sovereignty of God means <laughs> The supremacy of God. Supremacy of God is not to force the women of Iran to wear hijab. That's not supremacy of God. You've conquered their bodies and lost their minds. What, what, what have you accomplished? They obey you with their bodies, but every bit of their mind and soul and heart disobeys you and hates you. What is that? What what is that? An-Nufur is where you commit yourself. How do I win the hearts and minds of people for God's sovereignty and God's supremacy. Not mine, not the mullahs, not the ayatollahs, not the shuyukh, not CC, not MBS, not MBZ, but Allah. And so you say, I commit myself to what will hit, win the hearts and spirits of people to the light of God. I don't matter, my, my bosses don't matter. I don't care if people glorify this president or this imam or this, all I care about is that they understand the light of God. It's a completely different paradigm, people. And so, and then what follows is even, then Allah comes and tells you what I just told you is a principle of civilization. I mean, it, it, centuries after the revelation of the Qur'an, it, it, it's, it took human beings centuries of study and knowledge to understand what makes civilizations rise and what makes civilizations fall. But the Qur'an summed it up to you in one sentence. "Illa تَنْفِرُ if you are not active if you are not dynamic if you do not rise if you are static if you are apathetic if you give priority to the what is familiar and what is humdrum and what is common what is the result Absolute misery and torture. You will be replaced. That's the sunnah. You will be replaced. It's like the torment that we collectively Muslims are going through. And don't kid yourself. We are experiencing absolute torment. A genocide in, 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 in Muslims and, in, in, I mean, Muslim India played a huge role in Islamic history. The fact that Persia has been neutralized, Turkey has been neutralized, India has been neutralized, what remains? Islam shrunk back to its core and heart that it began with, Arabia. What is the problem with that? Well, when Islam started out with its core and heart, Arabia contained men that were equal to entire nations. The Prophet والسلام, and his Al Bayt and his companions, one of them is equal an entire nation. But when we go back to that core today, it's a desert. It's a desert without culture. So you've taken the Islamic civilization and all the people that built the Islamic civilization from who 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 are the, the ones who preserved the tradition of the Prophet ﷺ, the people of the former Soviet, uh, the nations that were part of the Soviet Republic, Bakhuristan and Tajikistan and, and Afghanistan and these areas? Where are they today in Islamic history? Where is the role of Khurasan and Iran in Islamic history? Where is the role of people of Daylam and Turk in Islamic history? Where's the role of even people of Masr in Islamic history? Islam has become now summed up in Arabia. That is the, that is the reality that, that we don't want to admit. Because we submitted ourselves to the nation state and accepted the logic of the nation state. And since they control the holy sites, then khalas, that's Islam. That's a disaster. Unless Arabia has the equivalent of Abu Bakr and Omar and, 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 and Ali, and, then it, it, is, it is an absolute disaster. And that's why when Allah tells us you will be replaced by another. We see the truth of that manifested in every waking moment of our life because we no longer engage in do not, do not be content with what is familiar and what is known to you. Commit yourself to dynamism, to discovery, to activism, to producing results and making a difference. If you don't make a difference, then you've betrayed the cause of Allah because ultimately Allah puts you on this earth to make a difference for Allah's sake, to bring light to this world. Not your light, Allah's light. And then, of course, this reminder that is specific to the Prophet s-salam. Surah At-Tawbah has this, where this is forty, right? إِلَّا <speaking in Hebrew> إذ أخرجه الذين كفروا ثاني اثنين إذ هما في الغار إذ يقول لصاحبه لا تحزن إن الله معنا فأنزل الله سكينته عليه وأيده بجنود لم تروها وجعل كلمة الذين كفروا الصفلة وكلمة, الذين وكلمة الله هي العليا والله عزيز حكيم That Allah reminds Muslims of the time when it comes to the Prophet, ultimately, victory is guaranteed by God. In the same way that the the miracle of escaping from Mecca, when entire Mecca was looking for Muhammad and Abu Bakr to assassinate them and of course the as most muslims know or i hope all muslims know that the story is that they are in the the reference here in verse 40 is that they are escaping from mecca and they go to ghar hira and at a at, at a moment of great stress as they see the meccans You know, few fixed footsteps away from the cave. And the Prophet comforts Abu Bakr by telling him, you know, don't worry, Allah is with us. But in this, of course, the promise of victory, that's exclusive to the Prophet. But there is a lesson from that to us is that in the same way that the Prophet is our living example, at a moment of great anxiety to remind yourself that you are never alone. If you truly, you are truly with Allah, the sign of that, and I know that this is harsh but it's true, The sign that Allah is with you is sakina, is tranquility. Allah might make you victorious and might not. That's not. That's the whole logic of nufur. Is that you you commit yourself to the action and you accept fully that the action might not end up the way you want it to end you make the sacrifice and you say allah this sacrifice is for you now whether you're ultimately victorious whether you ultimately achieve the results you were dreaming of whether you are popular whether you are you know you you become the greatest uh, uh, public intellectual in the world you become the the, the most famous uh, I don't know, journalists or whatever endeavors, you know, people say, or that is entirely up to Allah. But the sign that you truly understand what your action is about is that gift of sakina. If victory is not Guaranteed. But sakina is, if you are truly with Allah. If you do not have that sakina, that that tranquility, then your relationship to Allah needs work. Your ability to truly understand that God is with you and you're purifying of your intentions. Because sometimes we often say, why isn't God giving me sakina? Why isn't God giving me sakina? While with a, with a little bit of hard work and introspection, not judgment about others, but judgment about yourself, introspection, you discover that the reason is that God is not with you, is that you're truly not with God? You are motivated by other things. You're motivated by, you know, the the usual suspects, culprits, you know, popularity, prestige, um, desire, lust, um, whatever. But if you work at purifying your intentions. That I can tell you that I truly, with my whole heart, believe that tranquility and sakina is guaranteed. Okay, now look at 41. Infiru khifafan wa thiqala. وَجَاهِدُوا بِأَمْوَالِكُمْ وَأَنفُسِكُمْ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ ذَلِكُمْ خَيْرٌ لَّكُمْ إِن كُنتُمْ تَعْلَمُونَ SO THIS THIS SORT OF LIKE MOVEMENT IN THE STRUCTURE OF THE ayah REACHES THE it, THE IDEA IS COMPLETED FOR YOU BY ALLAH SAYING انْفِرُوا خِفَافًا وَثِقَالًا يَرْكضُ فِيهِمْ مُحَمَّدٌ اس تْرَانْسْلِيتس سمير because the idea here is significant. Okay, he so see, Muhammad as translated translator "Go forth to war, whether it be easy or difficult." It's not just war. That's the mistake that so many translators make. And kifafan watekala. Why does Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala say, say whether literally translates into whether it be lightweight or heavyweight why would Allah say go forth to action whether khifaf lightweight or thiqal heavyweight it's, the idea is not just whether it, it whether it's easy or difficult no the idea is whether you think that the effort is grand or the effort is is minimal. So a lot of people will not go be dynamic because they'll say, well, you know, what difference will that make? It's so little. You know, is it really... In their days, is really donating a date gonna make a difference? It's like the man that that, that told the Prophet you know, I I I got eight dates, and immediately I brought four to donate, and four for my family, and the the Prophet was pleased with him, as if he had given a mountain of gold. For dates, it is not for you to judge the extent of your sacrifice. It is for you to commit yourself to action. Whether it be whatever you can do, whether it is the most minimal or the most grand. Whether you are in a position to give 10 million dollars or you are in a position to just write a tweet. Commit yourself to the morality of action. To the morality of doing what is right. and then, then. Allah takes it to the, uh, the to the idea that is closer to war. and. And to even be very clear, this will require a jihad. Now we know that jihad doesn't necessarily have to be militarily. All form of struggle, but but even if this jihad requires whether it be material or with your own selves, meaning your own bodies. When Allah tells us, and this is better for you if you only knew it goes back to this idea that if you don't you have doomed if not yourselves your your descendants you the generations that will that will follow to torment and loss and being replaced as a people okay we're going to stop for maghrib Smilla Rahman Rahim, so almost Then so was forty-two. Clearly here, the Quran is referring to a particular historical context because it is telling the Prophet ﷺ that it's talking to him about a people that are known to him, but saying that if there, if this were, if, if this was a context in which there was an easy journey or a journey to a close by objective, a, a journey, the distance is not exhausting or overwhelming, uh, or if this was something for immediate gain, they would have followed you but yeah that but they have for the 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 people that the the quran is 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 talking about that they have considered the distance too great the distance to be too far, and, and they will swear to you, and that theme will be repeated several times in Surah At-Tawbah, those who make all types of assurances that their intentions are contrary to what Allah knows their intentions to be. So they will swear to you that oh, if, if we could, we would be with you, but we can't. And but in, in fact, they are destroying themselves. They're casting themselves onto ruin. Um. Let's see. Yeah, uh, Muhammad Asad just translates. Uh, they will be destroying their se- their own selves, for God knows that they're lying. So the the context here is that in the ninth year, again, because as I said, the the Prophet understood the objective of Nufur and that to be active and not to be apathetic and not to be uh, 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 um, passive in the way that you meet the challenges of earthly life, that part of that was that the Prophet was keen on a fairly sophisticated intelligence system. And Muslims received information that in in part, because of um, the the defeat of Mecca and the entry of Quraysh into Islam sent reverberations throughout Arabia well the Byzantians had Arab tribes across along their border that they had dominated for a very long time and these Arab tribes were for were, were they, they had no foreign policy to speak of their their foreign policy was completely um, Uh, dependent on whatever the Byzantians told them to do or not to do. And these Arab tribes along the Byzantian border were also paying a very heavy poll tax and had been paying a very heavy poll tax to the Byzantian Empire for, for a very long time. And the Byzantians got wind that there is a new kingdom, a new force uniting Arabia. Now, there's a lot of very interesting work about what precisely the, the nature of the news that we're reaching the Byzantians were. But it's fair to say that, you know, if even if you, you look at Byzantine sources, that they thought that this was sort of a um, a tribal chief who's declared himself a king and uh, who is unifying the Arab tribes. And what they worried about the most is that this is now going to induce rebellion among the Arab tribes along their borders. That these tribes that have been submissive for a very long time. Um, and, and I mean, there's a lot of details that I'm, I'm skipping over, but that, you know, reports that there have been talk among the Ghazasina that they shouldn't be paying, that they maybe shouldn't pay the poll tax or that they should demand that the Byzantines reduce the poll tax. In other words, they were becoming emboldened by what was going on in Arabia. So the the Byzantines decide that they're going to, Organize a military expedition to nip that danger in the bud and to sort of take a preemptory action in um, striking first and neutralizing that threat. And that's the news that the Prophet ﷺ, receives. I mean it's full of it's full of lessons so it, the, the prophet doesn't sit there and wait until the danger comes to his doorstep but organizes a military expedition that would go and meet the Byzantians close to the the borders of Byzantia and and he is there's a sort of an, an he is also keen that the he's he is worried that the byzantines are going to conscript the men from the arab tribes to send them to fight him and he doesn't want a confrontations with these tribes that he knows have been basically without any free will um for forever, he he wants to force the Byzantians to commit their own forces. In other words, to fight with their own men. But of course, this is a warfare. One, the distance to travel to Byzantine borders is is the furthest Muslims have gone. So it means traveling in the desert a far greater distance than they've traveled before. Second, Arabs have, are familiar with how with tribal warfare. In other words, how other tribes organize their armies and conduct their battles. The only people of the regions that had fought the Byzantians for any t- for long period of times were the Persians, and Persians. But but the the last battle between the Persians and the Byzantines had not gone well for the Persians. Initially, there was there was a, the Persians were victorious when Muslims were still in Mecca, but by the time the Medina period rolls around. The tide had turned, and the Byzantians have won a major victory against the the Persians. And so it is a true test in that now these Arab tribes, many of these tribes had become Muslim only recently, are committing themselves to a military engagement. Against a power that is mixed with a lot of mythology and apprehension and fear. <laughs> fighting the Byzantians is something different than fighting people of your own kind, you know, people that look like you and speak languages that you are familiar with. And you are also going to confront an army, not a um, an army, a professional army that is fighting away from where these soldiers and commanders live. Which means what which means that your ability to profit from this battle is limited to the military hardware that ev even if you win, even if you're victorious, the most you're going to gain is the military hardware that is left on the battlefield, but there's not going to be anything close to you know cattle and livestock and all the stuff that. Happens when, uh, when uh, in tribal warfare, where uh, people are fighting close to actually where they live, and so what you end up capturing in in this type of battle is far greater than if we can we use the the term it's sort of a professional army that is so the news that the Prophet wants to organize this expedition to fight the Byzantians in a faraway land with limited opportunities for profit and a battle that will truly test the technological know-how, the uh, military hardware of uh, Muslims and that promises to be of also very high casualties um, definitely has its effect. And you will find that the so much of Surah Taubah is focused on the theme of people who make all types of excuses not to commit themselves to going out with Muslims and fighting this battle. Now, so this is the context of if this was a nearby objective or, you know, short travel, or if this was an opportunity for profit and gain, they would have joined you. But because it's not, what muslims the ansara and the muhajirin witness is a phenomenon that is all too human people are coming up with a million different excuses why they cannot join and some of these excuses will be addressed in surah at-tauba but surah at-tauba I mean some of the excuses are addressed, but you can imagine the range of excuses that we find in the tradition. and we'll talk about these uh, some of these excuses at least, but that they effectively the the central theme is, oh, if only we could, we would but we can't. Some of them, as we will see, say, "Well, okay, we can't join you." So please accept from us our donation, but otherwise forgive us for not being able to join. Others, as we will see, take a even a worse route. They they go to the Prophet ﷺ and make an excuse why they can't join. Our family needs us, our children. And remember that in Surah T-Taubah, earlier, and we talked about this. That Allah says that if your, if your loved ones or your family or your tribe or your business is more beloved to you than Allah and is jihad in Allah's cause, then wait until Allah delivers your fate to you. So, already we know that in Surah Al Tawbah, there is this theme that you remember that what these people are basically coming and saying is because of our, our personal circumstance, uh, because our, of our family, because of our children, because of our business, we cannot commit to joining you. And they, of course, know that it looks suspicious and it looks fishy so you know in other words they know as they're making the excuse that everyone who is committed is looking at them and saying really and the way they address a suspect situation is to double down and to swear i swear by allah this is the truth i'm not lying i'm not exaggerating You know, and the prophet's reaction, I mean, again, the seed, remember that theme of the seed, the moral seed. Some of them, the people that are truly a disappointment, in other words, those of them that are among the early converts who are Ansar or who are Muhajirin, the Prophet والسلام, when they make an excuse, doesn't respond. Remains quiet. And they take his silence as consent. For those who are recent converts he nods his head or he says, okay, fine. Now, you will find this passed over in numerous sources without comment. But pause and think. We've encountered the same exact thing before in several occasions, right? We've encountered it in we've encountered it in the battle of the trench why doesn't the prophet respond by saying are you kidding me you know you're a Muslim you should know better why doesn't he preach why doesn't he engage in a lecture why doesn't he shame well at a minimum the, seed that, the moral seed that you would understand is about the nature of commitment and consent and conviction. It's a lost cause. Like, you know, so many of part of, and this is, a, 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 what was the name of that book? it's a it's a it's a legal historian that studied the nature of the performance of armies conscript armies and volunteer or or semi-volunteer armies and of course it's not really a shock that armies that rely on basically indentured service or enslaved people for all practical purposes, the the conscription of the most powerless elements in society are also armies that once challenged fail to demonstrate creativity and initiative and fold very easily. While armies that induced commitment through notions or mythologies of honor and pride and um, accomplishment, in you know a sense of, of of purpose or destiny, when tested show the most creativity, the most initiative, the most determination. And of course, that book, you know, looked at the armies from wars from the Napoleonic Wars to the wars of the Frederick the Great to the uh, colonial wars to you know it, it looked at just broad array of uh, to the, ar- the what we know about the armies of Alexander the Great to the the. Uh, uh, What we know about the Byzantine armies versus the Persian armies, you know, it was a fascinating ride through military history. SubhanAllah, our Prophet knew this. You're going to get a people who, the first real challenge, are going to run away. Now, as the, Allah says, that if they would have joined you, that in fact, if they would, as we will see, if they would have joined you, they would have actually been a liability to you. Because the worst thing in, in a war like this is that you see your partner run away. In the heat of battle, if the person next to you withdraw, runs away, freaks out, panics. So, but the seed that the Prophet, the moral seed that the Prophet teaches us about the nature of consent and the nature of commitment that comes from conviction is invaluable. And I wish that it was something that. I mean, again, you, you can talk about all the different things that contributed to the crumbling of the Islamic civilization, but among the lessons is is the, that that who produce what produces initiative. What? Why do you need people who actually believe? In the cause, that and the cause cannot be simply serving someone that they don't believe in, like another human being that they don't believe in. Okay, so but Allah confronts them with themselves and say and say and and Allah doesn't leave this 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 these ayat are revealed after Tabuk and. Allah doesn't let this pass without saying you came with your excuses to the Prophet you swore up and down and you took his silence or his consent as a ticket home but you forgot that even if the Prophet said okay fine I understand, but you know that you're lying. That doesn't get you off the hook. Remember what Allah told us before about those who took their priests and their ahbar and their their priests and the rabbis as their gods. Halal and haram became defined by what these people said. Once they say what they say, their conscience doesn't do any work. Well, that's not the way your relationship with Allah works. Even if the Prophet says, I understand, but you know you're lying. You know you're being weak. It's not going to avail you. It's an We, we, because we we tell the seerah often in very, uh, you know, like children's story fashion. Um, We ignore, we, we miss out on understanding. Imagine, you think you got, okay, the prophet said it's okay. So, you know, all you people who are blaming me or all you people who are looking at me as if I've done something wrong, you know, shut up. I I got it from the mouth of the big man himself. And the Quran comes and says, guess what? You forgot about God. And God, and, And it's not about what you managed to extract from the Prophet. It's about what you should have known. Now, this puts the onus of moral obligation upon the individual. If, if, if your moral obligation cannot be alleviated by the Prophet, salam, how about a ruler? I mean, pa- pause and think about that. If, if, Allah comes and says, not even the prophet. How about these Muslims who tell you, oh, well, it's like, you know, uh, Adnan Ibrahim, when he says, oh, Sheikh Al-Azhar, of course, no problem that he didn't say a'aza for Qardawi. After all, the government in Egypt said, we don't want a prayer on Qardawi. No one mentions Qaradawi, and Sheikh Al-Azhar is an an employee in the government. He has to obey. Look at the huge difference in understanding. Here is someone that's telling you that military officer, that dictator, that tyrant, that thoroughly corrupt human being, defines your responsibility morally, ethically, religiously, legally. And Allah is teaching you not even the prophet can get you off the hook when it comes to your ethical, moral responsibility. Just ponder that. Ponder the impact of that. And ponder the way that this is Surah Tawbah, the message that it is revving up, as Allah knows, the Prophet sallam, is not going to be alive for much longer. What the moral lesson to Muslims is: you are swearing. that the Prophet accepted, but it doesn't. It doesn't avail you. So af Allahu Ant Lima Azin Talahum Hattabaya na Latal Lazina Sadahu Watala Makazbeen. Allah already Allah most commentators the way they understand forty three let's see how Muhammad Asad translates it because this is uh, May God pardon thee, O Prophet, why didst thou grant them permission to stay at home, ere it had become obvious to you as to who, who was speaking the truth, and ere thou cam- camest to know who were the liars? And then question mark. This is Muhammad Asan. Most commentators say that Allah is chiding the Prophet for having given their permission, having given them permission not to join. Okay? That Allah is chiding the Prophet for giving their permission not to join. For telling them, yes, okay, fine. And that Allah is telling the Prophet, I forgave you for having made that mistake. And Allah understands that you did that so that you can find out who are the liars and who are not the liars. Okay, but there is a problem with this. Go down to forty-seven. Allah says, "Walauxharajo ma illa أوضع خِلَالَكُمْ يَبْغُونَكُمْ الْفِتْنَةِ In 47, Allah says, hey, if they would have in fact joined you, it would have been worse. They would have in fact caused your army to suffer. So how could, be, how could it be that God is chiding the Prophet for what Allah says was the correct thing? Allah says if they would have gone, you act, if they would have joined you, it would have been worse. So, how could Allah then blame the Prophet for doing the right thing? Doesn't make any sense. So, the commentators are wrong. Allah is not saying anywhere here that Allah understands. Doesn't mean Allah has forgiven you. It means Allah understands what you, why you did what you did. It is an, a confirmation, a validation of the what the prophet did. Not Allah chiding the prophet for the decision. Allah is saying, yes, Allah understands that you did what you did. Not as even Muhammad Asad says, a, a question mark to find out who are the true. And Allah, the prophet knows. Who, who's lying and who's not lying? He knows. But Allah understands that you did what you did because you know who among them, and this is all depends by, you know, grammatically, If for is how the qira'ah of lima or lemma, depending on the qira'ah, of that Lima as in or as in anyway that you did this knowing that who's the truth who's who's being truthful and who is lying and indeed as you see in forty four Laya stazinukalazina yuminuna billahi wa leomul ekir, and you jahidu bi amwali him one fusoon one fo and fusihim. Wallahu ali muntakin in nama yast azinukalazina lay uminununa bilah wal echir, war tabat kulubuhum, for whom fe Rai bihim yataradadun. So but, and but this idea is not complete until وَلَوْ الْخُرُوجِ لَهُ وَلَكِنْ كَرِهَ وَقِيلَ قُعُدُوا مَعَ It is among the things that just blow your mind. Okay, so first Allah says, after validating what the Prophet did, is say, Okay, those who come and make excuses not to be engaged in this jihad are not the true believers. The true believers do not make excuses. But look at the crux of the matter. Why? If they were truthful, if they were sincere, They would have prepared themselves to be able to join you. This gets into deep psychology. You see, you could, your, your psychology is weak. You don't want to sacrifice. You don't want to be um, in, in a state of Nufur. So you set up the conditions of your life. So that's one thing, is that you set up the conditions of your life. You don't you, you don't take the necessary steps so that if you go to your on jihad your children are taken care of. Or If you go on jihad, your your family is not going to starve. You sort of not take the steps. And so that effectively it ends up being that when the situation comes up, you can't really make the sacrifice. But Allah exposes you, lays you bare before yourself and says, really? You think this really fools Allah? Allah? But it is even more damning than this, because Allah is saying, if you really wanted to uphold Islam, if you really wanted to serve Allah and serve Islam the way you claim you do, you would have done what is necessary so, let me put it in very concrete terms. You come and say, I mean, I, I, I don't want to pick on, on but examples in life, you know, and I know examples leave me with very few friends, but who cares. You come and say, we are the Islamic Republic. And as the Islamic Republic, we stand up to the great Satan, the Satan of imperialism. But your society is caving from the inside under the weight of corruption. How is that, I'dad al-Adda? That everything you said about your intentions and all your jihad, it's nonsense because the first elementary thing the first elementary thing if you're serious about what you want to do is to have a society that is that can stand on its own feet that is cohesive that is healed that is healthy to have at a minimum a military that is not corruptible but if your military suffers from corruption. So when Allah says, Law aradu A'addu that if they really wanted to, they would have done their homework so that they are able to. It's a condemnation of even Muslims and, and to be true, I heard this from Sheikh Ghazali, but I'm repeating it because it's, it's, he's absolutely right. You, the, your enemy has the technology to invent things to come kill you from the air. And you're limiting yourself to building a steel box that you call a tank. And that's even if you're building a tank. Because even Muslims don't, most Muslims haven't even done that. What odd? What Allah says is that you take the steps necessary for Nufur. So, and the steps necessary, you can't be, oh, well, you know, we are in an age where, you know, people are using satellites and lasers and and you are training yourself to ride horses very fast. The the absolute idiocy of that. So Surat At-Tawbah comes and condemns, lays you bare, and says, if they were serious, they would have organized their lives, organized their commitments, organized their sacrifices, so that they can make the sacrifice. But to come having not given the matter of the sacrifice any serious thought or any diligent commitment and come to the last moment and say, I can't, I have circumstance. That's the responsibility that you will confront before Allah. And when, I mean, Surah at Tawbah, I, 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 that's why it's like, I, I'm like, Surah Taubah. Tawbah, I've been fretting dealing with Surah at Tawbah. Because we will see how Allah comes and actually points to this as-kufr. Says not just hypocrisy, but even beyond hypocrisy. You're not really Muslims at all. Because it raises then, well, the implications are just. So, and Allah knows that. So, look, look at the expression. Allah knows they're lazy. Allah knows they're not sincere. Allah knows they're not committed, for thabbatahum, thabbatahum means to literally take the air out of them, to make them lethargic. So Allah says, okay, yeah, this is the way you want to be, I'm not going to help you. And so you're going to wake up every day not motivated to do anything, but this is on you, not on me, this is on you. Because you lack the commitment. You lack the dedication. So Allah is not going to gift you with some exceptional energy to overcome your lethargy and your apathy. Every day you're going to feel lethargy and apathy and anxiety and depression and unhappiness and and confusion and I don't know and you are going to live in a world of narcissism and self-involvement, as we will see, which will come in Surah Tawbah. It's, it's, just, it's, a, it's an ear-shattering surah. And then, what time is it? Okay. And having taken or having allowed them to stay in this apathetic state, Allah effectively says, okay, remain inactive the way you are. And again, these are folks that at the time, after Muslims have gone out to the Battle of Tabuk, and they after making that journey, and by the way, on the journey they nearly die of thirst because it, it, it and so you know, the, the, the narrations of the, then the prophet prays for rain and rain falls and, and so on and so forth. But it, and ultimately it, the, in the battle the Byzantians failed to show up. So but subhanAllah, the, the fact that the Byzantians heard that the Muslims showed up was, I'm convinced, was a, played a critical role in the psychology, in the psychological warfare that will later on allow Muslims to win their victories against the Byzantians. So, and then Allah in 47 comes says, Why is it that the Prophet was right in telling, okay, fine, don't come? That if they would have joined you, that when tested, with hardship what is the what would happen when they're going through this journey and then they start experiencing thirst and hardship What will happen is that they will start complaining and whining and bitching. And it's, it's, it's a, when Allah says, Yabhunakum al Fitna wafikum samma'una lahum, Wallahu alimum bizalimin, that they will sow fitna in your ranks once they start complaining. Now, we know what type of complaining would have happened because of a group of, of them that did go, that did didn't seek an excuse, but actually went on this campaign. And what they started doing when things got hard in that journey is that they started questioning the wisdom of the, the Prophet in going out on this campaign. And so, when in 47, and Allah says, So, so they, they would have started complaining, lahum. And Allah knows that there are amongst you who would have been influenced by this low morale and by the complaining. And again, how could after all of this, that all of these commentators come and say, Allah was chiding the Prophet for being wrong? When Allah is, is saying that in fact, they would have added to fitna, and there are amongst you people who would have actually listened to them. And we don't forget that in Surah Al-Nur, in Surah Al-Nur, this is where Allah tells the Prophet that, لهم, that in Surah an nur Allah told the Prophet that if they ask you permission, Allah leaves it in the discretion of the Prophet. To give them permission or not to give them permission, if they ask you permission, and you know that it's it's justified, give them permission. So, you know, from all levels, this this classical narrative about Allah chiding the Prophet about this is not it doesn't work. Okay. Um, yeah. So 48 and 49 indeed before this time, they have tried, they they have caused fitna and devised all manner of plots against you until the truth was revealed and God's will became manifest However hateful this may have been to them. And among them are many who said, Grant me permission to remain at home and do not put me to to hard do not put me to a hard test. Oh verily, by making such a request they have already failed in their test and succumbed to the temptation of evil. And behold, hell will indeed encompass all who refuse to acknowledge the truth. Okay So لقد ابتغوا الفتنة من قبل وقلبوا لك الأمور حتى جاء الحق وظهر أمر الله وهم كارهون ومنهم من يقول إئذن لي ولا تفتني ألا في الفتنة سقطوا وإن جهنم لا لمحيطة بالكافرين There are, here, the context is replete with many reports, and um, so Okay, so many of the individuals that were involved in going and seeking permission, you know, the classic character of Abdullah ibn Ubayy, um, or people like him, because I can't remember if he was dead by then or not. I don't remember. But anyway, that the were the same figures that are the opposition group within Medina. The same figures who second, who... You know, we're we're whining and complaining with the various legislation or the various uh, 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 revelation that required uh, uh, financial sacrifices, that required the taking care of orphans, that the the various revelations about inheritance, the various revelations about divorce laws. The same individuals that were whining and complaining about in ghazwat al khandaq and the battle of the trench that were whine and and the division of of uh, prophets which they were unhappy with because they got nothing and the same individuals that were again refused to go on the pilgrimage to Mecca, because it was a suicide mission. So, these same individuals, this, this sort of dissenting group, this opposition group, that the Prophet, ﷺ and that unfortunately we don't do ourselves a favor when we write a seerah where we don't acknowledge that the Prophet ﷺ confronted a consistent opposition group that he tolerated. Because you know what? If we would have written our history with the bravery to acknowledge this, it wouldn't be so easy for Muslim rulers today to grab whoever opposes them and kill them. Because if the, if, 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 if these people who've reached levels of opposition that rarely are reached against any ruler. I mean, I doubt that even the founding fathers of the United States would have tolerated... You know, I teach a course on political crimes, and we go through trials of sedition in the founding of the United States, and I can tell you that the highly democratic fathers of the United States did not tolerate that level of opposition. They tried people for sedition for far less than what these people did. Is it significant that our prophet didn't? Yes, it's extremely significant. Because again, the seeds of morality. How do you understand what is being planted? If you don't even notice what is being planted, how do you expect a mor- for moral growth to, to be there? There is no moral growth because you didn't even notice the seed. Maybe the seed is still there in the soil, but it's waiting. It's waiting until those who come and notice it and say, ah, okay, let's now this nourish it so that it grows into something. No question. So again, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah is aware, these are the same people that have thought fitna before. Despite the fact, our modern psychology as Muslims, and I'm I'm underscoring this because it's how badly we are scarred as Muslims, that anyone who's causing a fitna and they cite the hadith, oh, you know, if you agree on on a matter and someone comes and caused dissent, Kill them, whoever they are. That hadith, which is a fabricated hadith, maudu'a, 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 I mean fabricated by, by, by any measure of analysis that you pursue. Leave alone that it contradicts the actual living sunnah of the Prophet and the Quran, because those who have thought fitna before, and they've even, they've turned things upside down upon you. They've caused so much upheaval for you. Does, in light of that, even after Surah at tawbah is the answer execute them, imprison them, banish them, exile them? No. Was Allah exposing them? And you'll see the only threat made against them, but even that will come to. Okay. So, so, and and then and every time, Allah has aided you so that truth prevailed, and every time they were disappointed. You know, Khandaq passed, Uhud passed, Khandaq passed, the uh, uh, the uh, passed. Uh, uh, everything back and every time they were defeated and yet again they're up to the the same dynamics so that's a side of it right some of them came and told the prophet I can't join you in person but I'll support you financially I will make a donation and yet they are included in the Quranic condemnation because this is not about money this is about principle and you don't want a situation where the wealthy get to pay their way out of sacrifice so if you don't have money, well, you've got to sacrifice. But if you have money, I'll take your money instead and you're off the hook. Others were even more obnoxious. They came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, Forgive us, because, if you command us to join you, we will disobey you. And we don't want to disobey you. Obnoxious people exist at every time and place. Right? You know, if you if you put pressure on me, I'm going to rebel, so don't put pressure on me. And... and, and the dignity and amazing majesty of the Prophet's response to them. You know, because I've read these reports very carefully, and you don't have a single situation where it's like, how dare you speak to me like that? It's offensive. just wouldn't respond. There were a couple of instances where he smiled. but Then, there are some, like Ished bin Qais. Ejad bin Qais comes with an interesting excuse, but he went down in history because of his excuse. He didn't say my my children or my business or I'm going to disobey you or I'll I'll give money instead. He said, I am week before women and I fear that if we go I will, I will see blonde women, Banat al-Asfar as they're called and I won't be able to control myself when it comes to blonde women so because I don't want this fitna you know I can't join And the Prophet ﷺ smiled and didn't respond, and he didn't join. Now, it sounds comical, but reflect on it for for a second. If this man was serious, what is his real moral failure? Complete lack of priorities in understanding is ethical obligation the answer to the challenge to the that you con, that you confront is self control is not neutralizing the challenge so that you are not put in a situation where you have to actually do mufur. because We actually end up doing what Ejad bin Qais did, but we're just not as honest about it. He was very frank about it. He said, I won't be able to control myself with blonde women. But how many situations where Muslims won't go into a field because they want to stay next to what is safe? Oh, lest I do haram. I don't want to do haram. You know, I'm, I'm just going to keep things not challenging. And so to avoid challenging situations, you say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going through the safe route. A Muslim is supposed to be strong. And catering to your weakness is no answer you will discover that you are often as strong as you demand of yourselves. I was commenting to Grace that I'm watching uh, a a violin competition uh, in Poland these days. And, you know, as usual, you notice, as usual these days, that so many of the best violinists are Asians. South Korean and Japanese and Chinese. It's not genes. It's what they expect of themselves. It's their work ethic. And I'll tell you how I know it's their work ethic. Because those who practice the violin very, very hard, they get a bruise on their neck that looks like a huge hickey. It's like a big brown spot on the neck. And Every single one of these Asians had that mark on the neck. And it's like, wow. And so they're dominating the competition. But that's not unusual. It's been like that now for a while. Of course, you know, crazy me, I'm sitting there and saying, when will it be the day well, it will be Muslims and And then, you know, of course, Allah uh, leads me to a single Muslim that actually competed in the Minukhin uh, violin competitions. Um, The last name was Abu Zahra. It was a woman. I think Dina Abu Zahra. But, of course, you know, as i did my research it turned out to be completely sec- a completely secular family that has you know uh, couldn't couldn't reconcile between being an artist and an innovator in in, in music and being muslim and you know. okay so a whole range of excuses. Now this in to sipka hasanatun tasuhum. Wa into sibka musibatun yakulu kat akadna amrana min kablu wayatawalla wa humpfari hun. 50, the way it is always commented on is that they are hypocrites. And because they're hypocrites, they actually, not just that they make excuses, but they want, they are wishing evil for Muslims. They want Muslims to be defeated. This is a, a, a dumbing down of the historical record. Because they... they he, here is the, the what, what the historical record actually tells you. That some of them are indeed, like Abdullah ibn Ubay, who actually wish ill for Muslims. And but that's a minority. That's that these are the well known Supporters of Abdullah ibn Ubay who are, are not Muslim at all. But what 50 is pointing to is something even more subtle than this. These are people that because of the weaknesses within, they ha- are are constantly not with what is needed to move ahead, to progress, to move forward. As we saw in al-Khandaq, you know, they're complaining. In 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 uh, Hudaybiyah, they are complaining, and, and so on. But these people who come to the Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam, And to the prophet, they are making excuses. And they say, you know, our circumstance, and they swear, and so on. When they are not with the prophet, and they are within their own close circles, they are criticizing. So with the prophet, they are showing themselves to be polite and respectful. And we'll see, this is even addressed in sort of the Tawbah, more specifically and more on point. But when, when they are within their own circles, they are the I know better bunch yeah, you know, this is ill-advised, this is, you know, they they are, the, the, the the, 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 the group that is complaining and bitching and criticizing, but they're not going to do that with the Prophet. They do that behind the Prophet's back. Psychologically, then, they've put themselves in a position that they want validation for their weak selves and cowardliness. This is one of the worst ailments, (coughs) is when you're a hypocrite and you don't realize you're a hypocrite. You see, if things go really well, then they look bad. And so Allah comments on this and says, look, so if things go back go bad, they say, see, this is why we didn't join. We knew this was a failed venture. And because we knew things were going to go badly, this we were so we were so wise. That's why we were careful. That's why we didn't jump into it. And and what they don't admit to themselves is that they're actually happy at the failure. When you put yourself in a box that you are happy at the failure of a Muslim initiative and a Muslim effort, it is the worst of makayid shaitan, the worst of the traps of shaitan, because it could happen where you don't even admit the happiness to yourself. What you you you're sort of relieved and say, "Oh, I knew this is going to happen," but that's your happiness and. In Allah Surah Tawbah, as I remember I told you that the the they they gave it many different names initially, and among the names that they gave it gave it is the exposer. Because it exposes human beings to themselves. Are you the type that's going to say I knew it was going to end this way? I knew it was bad, and your sense of validation takes precedence over your commitment to the cause? Because that's a terrible situation and a terrible relationship with shaitan. You've surrendered to your shaitan and you don't even realize it. What time is it? Okay, we are... Uh, we are at 50. It's a good spot to stop. Um, yeah. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Okay. Let's... You guys will remind me that we stopped at fifteen.
0: Okay. Rahim. Um, Alhamdulillah. This was absolutely amazing as always. Um, just a few highlights that I took note of. Um, in the beginning, the uh, the idea of the cost of losing a sense of sacred time and sacred space, and um, what strikes me is like you know when when it's Ramadan, we all shift into a different rhythm, and it's very natural, and we know it, and it's sort of automatic. Where it's like, okay, this is the month where we donate more. This is the month when we do this more and that more. So even the idea of if we actually were raised with the idea that four months out of the year is like that. You know you start to get an idea of how incredibly um, transformative that would be like your point about you know no don't get a divorce during this month it's a sacred month so you, you get a sense of what we've lost um, and I think that obviously like, I, I don't even know you know what the sacred months are and it's like oh gosh you know this is um, so important just for us even living in a non-Muslim country where we don't know whether it's a particular Muslim month or not, or you know, a particular date has passed that it's something that we should do on our own um, to reclaim that in our own in our own way. Um, and actually, I wanted to just also say the the really important point that you said at the very beginning of the um, Halakha, which is when um, we've lost so much as Muslims in so many different ways that the only thing left to us is education. That's such a powerful idea um and you know hopefully i mean it becomes a, a very important mission for for all of us to just invest in that and to try and spread um spread the word and maybe that's also a side way of just promoting the prophet's pulpit which is you know um is doing incredibly well with um getting the word out so anyway if anyone has friends who wants a, pro- a copy of the prophet's pulpit. Um, let us know that that book has been really transformative. We've been getting really amazing reviews back. Okay, that's just a little sidestep. Um, the idea of Nufour, which is your, your, the whole discussion that um, you engaged in was so powerful and so beautiful. Um, the idea that we should be dynamic and um, you know at, at the forefront, um, active, not apathetic, um sacrificing you know and not the opposite um these are all things that we all understand it's like when when god calls you to action and your reaction is sort of like oh no gosh you know you kind of know what you're supposed to do and then you don't really want to like these are things that i think we've all experienced in one way shape or form but this is something that speaks so deeply to us so the idea that verse 38 and 39 are just, are an encapsulation of just, you know, even the, the essence of what it means to be Muslim um, for our, our time is is so incredibly valuable. And the question of, you know, have you become so content with this life? And all that comes with that question, you know, are you willing just to settle for what's comfortable for you um, and justify your inaction? Um, you know, why are you not moving and changing? And, um, you know, that, that just really... and, and pushing things forward that really just summarizes I think what what we're trying to also accomplish here through encouraging Muslims to be active Um, and then um, the idea that or the the verse that said you know whether it's small or great you don't really know um, you know whether what you are going to do is going to make a great difference or a small difference or you know giving eight dates or giving you know getting eight dates and giving away four something that you know conceivably is very small but actually could be quite huge um and actually what i forgot my phone we got this really beautiful message as i was sitting here um maybe i'll just paraphrase it because it was actually to this point um someone who who watched, in my weekly email this week, I sent out the video of uh, Sheikh on the Rami after show where he's sitting and talking with um, Rami and another artist. And (coughs) he wrote that from Pakistan, um, this was so powerful and so beautiful for him to watch um, because there are, in in Pakistan, there are um, people who believe that art and artistry are haram. And uh, I guess recently a singer stopped singing because of that belief. And so for him to watch you sitting with uh, you know, artists and conversing just left him with a, a feeling and that he couldn't describe, it, but it was just so beautiful and um, that it changed his thinking. And the idea that when you did that, it was so small. You had no idea that it would have any impact on anyone and yet someone in Pakistan could write and say this was transformative for him. It just goes, you know, it's a a perfect example of how you never know if you're doing something even tiny that can make such a huge difference. Um, And then the idea that tranquility is a sign that Allah is with you, that you just have to commit to the action and commit to serving Um, to bring God's light into the world and regardless of the outcome whether you get victory or not if you have the tranquility that that is a sign that Allah is with you is extremely powerful and then just in uh, the most important notion is this idea of seeds of morality that are planted and understanding like first having noticing the seed recognizing the seed you know as we read through the Quran like is this a seed that can be nourished and that can grow Um, but if we do nothing but just have a seed Um, that has not been developed or planted or grown, then we've we've actually done nothing. But the idea of taking that seed and turning it into something, you know, incredible is is the goal. And um, again, it begins with this education. So thank you so much, Shaykh. This has been an incredible session. And uh, we're on verse 50 out of 129. We still have a ways to go, so I'm excited to continue on this journey and look forward to next week, inshallah. And continuing with day five. <laughs> so have a wonderful week, everybody. Salam and inshallah we'll see you next week. Assalamu alaikum.